Here we go, Mortality and Me. Hello there, my name's Hilary Steele, host of the podcast and live stream series, Mortality and Me. I'm very excited, as this is the first live stream that we're doing under the brand Mortality and Me, that I have one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life joining me, and that is Sylvia Maxwell, who is a lifestyle and fitness coach based here in Kent. Let's bring her in and introduce her properly. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Nice to see you. Strange times we're living in. Um, just for the record, we are currently in lockdown because of COVID-19. So we're making the most of... Uh, well, there are a lot of people are on camera at the moment doing things like Zoom conversations with Prosecco. However, we're actually here going to be discussing something a bit more, a bit more that we all have in common. Uh, that we, uh, we all have in common the fact that one day we'll no longer be here. It's one of the first things. I've been talking to quite a few people lately... And it's like, why are we afraid, Sarah, do you think, to talk about death and dying? I think it's it's one of those things that because people don't really have any kind of concrete idea of what does happen. It's the fear of the unknown. And I, and I find that it's, it's sort of very much across the board in many things. Um, and it's probably it's the biggest fear, isn't it? That the fact that um, that you are going to die, it's inevitable. And I think sometimes for people when they actually want to say something about it or they don't want to say something about it it's kind of they're thinking well you know let's not bring it on i think it's a it is a fear basically that it's going to happen and there's nothing we can do about it it's um it is one of those it was one of those conversations and as you're well aware i've been, i've been delivering funeral services uh, yeah. for the last six seven months and it's been quite interesting because all of a sudden people are in this position that they have to really deal with someone that's died or, or, or death and, and and some of the some of the deaths are it's a strange way to describe describe it but they're either good deaths or bad deaths I mean what do you think is a, as a good death well it's an interesting one because for me a good death would be pain-free um and to have done and to have felt satisfied within myself that I've done all the things that I wanted to do told all the people that I loved that I loved them um, had all of my affairs in order um, and had people I loved around me and in, in a place where I wanted to be so that I would be more at peace. That's, that, for me, would be a good death. Just out of curiosity, have you explained to those close to you, if something happened to you, what you would like? Uh, yeah, I have, actually. Excellent. No, that's good. That's good. You're a minority. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm a bit fussy, actually. I can see them all looking at me. Um... I have said that I would believe um, that I would I would like to have there's two things a church service um, it is what my dad did actually um, and have and have a religious sort of service but more kind of light-hearted but not too light-hearted if you see what I mean it's got to have because I think that's also part of the the grieving process um, and then afterwards a celebrant kind of thing. Um, which would be kind of celebrating. So the first one would be a little bit more formal, because for me, that's just important, mm -hmm. just for me. Um, and then I'd like to cheer them all up and have something that was fun and show some silly pictures and stuff. So, yeah, I would kind of draw it out a bit, because, you know, I do like a bit of drama. I can't imagine you having any silly pictures that exist of you or or, or drawing out anything. No, that, that doesn't doesn't really ring true. But, um, yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> So for, so for the main act of, of the funeral, would you lean more towards a cremation or a burial? I would lean towards a cremation. And the reason being um, 
is that what I what I would feel, and I know what I would be like. I've met many people who have parents or friends, whatever, who've, be, who've been buried, and for one reason or another, they haven't managed to get to the grave, or you know, there's been various problems, and it's become a real issue. Now, I know for some people, it's really important that they have somewhere specifically to go. Um, I just think, you know, just from my side of it, I'm very relieved that, that, that I don't have that because I'm an obsessive kind of person. I'd be there all the time with me, dust pan, you know. And, and I think for me, I, I, I would just don't want to put that on them because, you know, they'll think I'm, they'll think that's what I want. So it would restrict them to leaving the country or, you know, going away for an extended length of time. So I think for me, I'm quite happy to disappear off into the ether. No, it's, um, it's quite interesting because uh, I, I, with the same question, someone asked me the other day, and I used to think uh, definitely cremation. And then recently I've been delivering ceremonies at a natural burial ground. Oh. And I delivered one yesterday, actually. It was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful service and, and the sun and, and everything was lovely. However, I don't like creepy bodies. No, I don't. So there was a part of me that thought, well, I could actually compromise and have a cremation and then be interred in the burial sites so that then you are beneath the stars in a way and next week funnily enough i'm actually interring someone who's been cremated a number of years ago with a lady that we're burying uh, next week so the husband is joining the wife but she will be buried entire and uh, his uh, cremation remains will be joining her do you know that's lovely because I did that with with our dog actually. I, I buried his remains in the garden, our lovely Benson, and that was really special. And I suppose I hadn't really thought about that from you know from a human perspective. It was either sort of black and white one way or the other. It was either burial or cremation. I hadn't even thought about that. It's quite interesting because um, at the natural burial grounds, um, trees are now being planted on the grave. So in the future, where we're working at the moment will be woodland. See, that's a beautiful thought. With my mum, we um, sprinkled her ashes in a in a specific woodland place because where she'd always wanted to be. Um, and it was really beautiful, actually. And I think that idea of giving something back to the earth is lovely, really lovely. My, um, I, my parents were supposed to be scattered together in June on their wedding anniversary. And at the moment, like a lot of uh, cremated remains, they are sitting on the top of the drink cabinet in the dining room. And if this lockdown continues, then we will keep them there for another year. But I actually want the cut-off point that they weren't just hanging around, yes. uh, literally, because I don't want them seeing what I'm getting up to, just in case, you know, we don't know. I don't. Um, but, I mean, <laughs> you think, Sarah, my mum was paralysed for eight and a half years, and I'm upstairs in my house at the moment, and um, she hadn't been yeah. upstairs for all this time. She can see what a mess it is up here now, you know, the <laughs> wandering around. Yeah. So I think there is something like that. I, mean, I think what the, this whole thing has brought out in me and a lot of people that I've been speaking to, friends and yourself included, that um, there is a fear. But when we start talking about it, we smile, yeah. we reflect, we have we have memories of of our own parents or situations that people have have died. And, and when someone dies, it's never going to be oh lovely, it's that lovely spring day. Yeah. It's it's always going to be something. But I mean, have you you've experienced uh, a number of great loss? Um, would you mind sharing what actually what that meant to you? What happened? What you went through? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I won't bore you for too long with it. But there was there was a particular um, there was a particular one was my dad actually. When we were talking about the fear of death and talking about death, in fact, I found that the, 
that the fear of it was far worse than the reality. But this one came as a bit of a shock to me because I um, had found out when I was 16 that, um, or 14 I think, that my dad wasn't my real dad. Now, I was the only one in the family who didn't know that. Um, and it was it sort of was an open secret except for me. And, you know, I adored my dad and my mum and dad had split up when I was about two and now I know why. And, you know, we had, he had visitation, I would see him all the time. And it was always a weird situation because I got on very, very well with my dad. Anyway, he had got um, lung cancer, but I didn't really know because he didn't want to talk about it. I'd moved down to London. He was still living up, up north, that's where he was from. And we'd never discussed a real father or anything because for me, it, it wasn't a situation. Um, anyway, he had had an operation um, I had absolutely no idea it was terminal, in honest truth. I had no idea. I was 23 years old, and he would sort of write letters to me. And I was flipping as you know, you're 23, I'm just like out partying. I didn't even really, didn't think about it. And of course, because I had been the youngest, and I'd been like my oldest brother's 13 years older than me, that, that I was still in that baby kind of phase, they thought, and that I had never matured. So they decided not to say anything. When, and my family are not very good this you know at, at talking ever I mean it just doesn't happen um so anyway I was in the dark whatever I actually happened to be at a fitness convention and I was in, doing this stretch class there was about 200 people in the hall and I'd had an argument with my dad the day before now the reason I'd had an argument was because I bought it was, it was way back in the 90s like those Vodafone, she was a bit like heavy bricks. Mm. And it was all my wages, it was practically all my week's wages spent ringing him and seeing how he was, because I knew he wasn't right, but I didn't know, whatever. Anyway, the night before I happened to be in Coventry, it was, and the signal was bad, and he was telling me off. And for the first time ever, I, I said, Dad, I've just, I'm not going to put up with you shouting at me. And I put the phone down on him. And it was in the class the next day, it was about five to six. And we just got into a stretch and all of a sudden I just sat up off the floor and went, oh, like this, in the class. And everybody looked around and the teacher got off the stage, came up and she said, something severe has just happened. I can see it in your face. What have you felt? I said, something terrible, something's wrong. And he had died at that moment. And, and it was unbelievable because I went straight to the phone in the foyer and rang. And my sister-in-law um, said, oh, it's Sarah. And then shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. Well, um, apparently this tumour that he'd had had burst and it was it was really quick. And it was, it, it, I mean, I was in total shock about the whole thing, did not do. And of course, because of my situation, I didn't really know where my place was. I all of a sudden felt kind of like thrown out and like, I can't get involved because they all know he's not my real dad. Anyway, very long story short, um, the funeral, oh, it was probably one of the first funerals. I mean, I think I've been to my nana's before. And I walked in and, and you think this is, you think, you're, you know, people go, oh, you're imagining it. And I didn't. The entire church swiveled and stared at me. And I just wanted to die myself. It was horrendous. And in fact, I went into such shock after that. I didn't grieve really for my dad apart from a few tears. And then I decided to run a marathon and I'm not a marathon runner. It nearly killed me. It was absolutely horrendous. And that was kind of my way of, of grieving. But my relationship broke up. And it was because I actually didn't feel as though I could or I was allowed to so unfortunately that um because I think also people expect once the funeral's finished it's over well actually it isn't it's the whole grieving process I, I mean for me it would each time it's taken two years going through you know guilt upset anger pain 
meant to be in a cycle, um, but I delayed the first one. I didn't understand that. Wow. So that was that was my dad. But a few other sense. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was that was so, so. How do you how do you deal with grief then? How do you now process that? From that one being the first one that, that caused you two years of. Yes. Well, it was even more than two years, Hilary. I think I didn't really grieve properly. I think it probably hit me 10 years later, actually. Okay. And um, certainly when I, when I got married, it was 98, and he wasn't there. Then I sort of, you know, I started to come to terms with, with everything that had happened within my family and, you know, who my father was and all of that kind of thing. I'd matured quite a bit. But I think I had parked it. And I think the marathon was my way of thinking, I'll get it out this way. It, it, you know, it didn't. I just basically pushed it to one side. So now what I would, what I would say is, is I'm sort of aware that the fact that people won't understand. It's not like, you know, sort of Victorian days when people used to wear black. I, I wear black quite a lot anyway. Um, but it doesn't have that kind of thing now. And actually, I think for me, I would have been better off in those times because what it would have said was, Sarah is in pain. She is allowed to grieve. She's allowed to fall apart if she walks into a supermarket and hears a certain song or goes into a card shop and on Mother's Day or Father's Day. Do you know what I mean? And it was, you know, I, I, always, I, I always felt that if it was like later on, I couldn't have done that. And I think for me, that would have worked very, very well. So what I do now is I, I allow it. Um, and I'm very clear to people if I'm very unhappy now about it and I'll just say, I'm having a moment and I'm very upset about this, that and the other. And actually, once I've done that and said it, so much better, so much mm. better. And it does come in waves. You know, you, you can be like, yes, yeah, and then bang. And you just don't know when it's going to hit you and what, what it is. And I think it's about being kind to yourself and actually letting other people know because other people have absolutely no idea. And especially if they've not had a bereavement, they don't know the whole process. So, yeah, kindness to me. Yeah, it's, very difficult, it's very difficult to um to explain to someone who hasn't gone through something um and it's not something you want to preach about or anything but yeah, for me when I first suffered my biggest yeah when when I first experienced this I just sat down one day and I was like whoa things are so different now more than in COVID-19 and um, they are never going to be the same again you know and it was very very strange and and I didn't, and people actually didn't know what to talk to me about or how to talk to me because my parents went, my mum passed away and then my dad was three months and three days later. And people would almost like avoid you or they would text Sue to see how I was and, and stuff like that. And it's like, hello, my text, you know, I have my own telephone, I'm allowed, you know. Um, it was a very strange, very strange time. And one thing I've noticed uh, going to family visits or now doing it online is that almost when you say, if you have a memory that makes you laugh, or a memory that makes you cry, let that emotion come out. Yes. And it's almost like you're flicking a switch in the brain that's saying, oh, I'm allowed to breathe now. I don't have to behave in a certain way. Yeah. I mean, I've written poetry on this on the kentfuneral.co.uk, and it's just about how we behave. We don't have to. It, it's personal. And so if I call someone, I, I, I personally, I'm not very good at the, I'm sorry for your loss. It's those words to come out with the words. I, I mean, I'm always torn on the internet. It's, it's I, don't, I, don't, I don't. I'm not very comfortable saying those words. And I just think, you know. And then when I speak to them, I say, look, I don't know what you're feeling, but what I can say, this is if someone's your parents or their, their mum or dad have recently died. Uh, I don't know what you're feeling, but I can tell you that I've been in that situation in my own world very recently, or, or whenever, whatever. Um, and so 
I kind of know how this limbo land world that you're sitting in is, but it's different for everyone. And I think being able to talk about it and not being frightened to talk about it is one of the biggest things, biggest things that can, that can help. Which yeah. is, yeah, it, it's a crazy, it's a crazy, crazy time. And I think grief is almost something that we go. Oh. Yeah, it's a bit like you know, I, I would sort of align it a bit with. So when a woman has a baby, as an example, I mean this this may sound ridiculous, but again, in the old days. A woman would stay in hospital for 10 days, even after like a natural childbirth. She'd have people around her. She wouldn't do anything. And she would, they would spend time and the recovery and get her to bond with the baby. And mm. um, unfortunately, what's happening is very much the same as, as death, actually. So it's just life and death. Is, is that there's so much pressure to behave in a certain way that people are expected. I mean, I have people say to me, I couldn't believe this. I mean, my kids are 20 and how old are they now? 20 and 16. Um, <laughs> just had to get them off at Exa earlier because they were knacking me signal. Um, <laughs> and I said, I said to them, um, I've totally forgotten what I was going to say. Uh, no, that was it. So I'd had, the, had, had Gabby, my first one. And, you know, I'm just like anybody else. I gain weight, lose weight. Well, it depends on what I eat and what I do. And I found that after I had Gabby breastfeeding, I just got bigger and bigger and bigger. I couldn't stop eating. I mean, I'd wake myself up in the middle of the night to eat a packet of biscuits. And people would say to me, to my face, Sarah, you've not really lost much weight, have you? <laughs> and I'm not kidding. And, and this is the problem, because in that effect, it's, it's about two years for a woman to fully recover from having a baby. Now, if you think about the grieving process, it's, it's, it's a similar kind of cycle, depending on when you went into it. So I think things have shifted so much. People put pressure on themselves and they get pressure on other people, from other people, to be, oh, I'm fine. You know? And, and, and I think that's, it's, it's, it sort of seems to be, I'm just hoping with this crisis we're having at the moment, it's actually stopping people in their tracks and thinking maybe we were going too fast, maybe there's lots of other options and maybe, you know, looking after myself and actually vocalising what I need is, is really important. And with me, with, with, with my second one at the same thing, I realised then I needed to be looked after, so I did, which is after any subsequent bereavements, I've done that. So I think you sometimes have to learn the hard way and uh, take all the pressure and get it wrong and then then it's much much easier that's learning part of from you isn't it it's um it's being able to if you can channel energies or you can have outlets or or anything or just some of those days i had one last week i just lay under the duvet lay on the sofa read my books turned the phone on so no notifications i thought there is nothing that i need to do today that I can't do tomorrow. And that's not procrastinating about I'll put it off to tomorrow. That's I can afford this time to just be. And I think that's one of the key things is to allow your mind to, to wander, to reflect. And one of the loveliest things about grief, from my opinion, I can only speak to my opinion, is laughter. Is when yeah. I think about laughter and some of the stories and, and memories come into my head about my parents who I looked after at home for over eight years. I don't wear yellow gold. I put my mum's wedding ring on for her funeral. It went on. I can't take it off. <laughs> you know, I thought if I do something wrong, I'd be like, ah, get off, ow. You know, she's, it's, it's little things, and it makes me smile. And when I see yeah. that, I, I hold it, and it makes me smile. And it's just memories are ours to keep, and no one can take them from us, can they? Exactly. And you can't, you know, you can't buy 
those moments you know i think i think that's that's another thing with the situation that we're in now you know i've found for years when i've when i've taught people that the the hardest thing for most of them isn't the exercises is when i do the relaxation and meditation but at the end it drives some of them mad because a lot of people cannot cope with their own company they have to be busy they have to be seeing friends have to be doing this and and this is where this has sort of thrown us into this thing of oh, actually um and it's lovely isn't it to have a bit of self-care and go you know what it's fine I'm getting good at that. We need it. We, as long as not too much, it's all about me and that's yeah. not for anything else. But Sarah, it has been lovely to catch up with you. Um, thank you for sharing stories with me. And I've got some other ideas of maybe getting you back onto the show further down the line to uh, carry on a couple of discussions if you'd come back and join me. I would absolutely love to. Thank you very much. Thank you.